Good morning. We are reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, which in my Bible is on page 1015, but you don't have my Bible, so enter it in your Bibles. Here we go. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. I'll just pray for you, David. Father, thank you for all that you have prepared to say to us through David. We pray that your, your oil will be upon his head right now as he shares. Lord, give him just full utterance. And Lord, we pray that you would open our ears and our hearts to hear and to obey all that you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. When I first became a Christian, I was given a booklet entitled 20 Verses from the Bible That Every Christian Should Know by Heart. Um, the selection was, I think, by John Stott, who'd been the rector of the Anglican Church near Oxford Circus. And one of the verses from the passage this morning that Alex read so beautifully was one of those 20 verses. And I'll come back to that later. You can guess which of those verses, one of the 20 verses that all Christians should know by heart. Our passage opens saying, and coming to him, and by him they mean Jesus, and coming to Jesus as to a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious, in the sight of God. Now, stones are not living. They're inanimate, aren't they? So the minute we see that as it's talking about living stones, we know Peter is into metaphor. Okay? 
But Jesus was chosen and precious by God. And we are living stones, it says. We Christians are living stones being built up into a spiritual house, like stones going together. And the question is then, can you be a Christian if you're not part of a church? Because it's talking about us being built together, living stones joined to each other. And if you've ever seen a stone cottage, there's all sorts of different shapes and sizes in the stones, and they've got mortar between them, but they are all joined together. And that is the picture Peter is trying to say, that we are to be living stones. Now, I would almost go along saying, if you are not, you can't be a Christian on your own. Uh, But I have to uh, guard that. Because when we were working in Afghanistan, they used to have Christian radio programs that came over the air. And one guy up in one of the northern towns of Afghanistan, one guy, I say one man, a family man, he heard this radio broadcast and he listened to it and he continued to listen to these radio broadcasts and he decided to become a Christian. And he was, therefore, as he didn't think there were any other Christians in Afghanistan. And so there he was, as a Christian. And then his son started to say to him, what's this thing you're listening to, Dad? And his son listened, and his son became a Christian. And then one after the other, the members of the family, and I think it was the last one to become a Christian, was his wife. But there they were, this family group, and they called themselves, the ch- they gave their church a name, and I, I used to know it, but I've forgotten what it was called now. We are this church. And it was just a single family in northern Afghanistan. And it so happened that one of the workers bumped into them, or you know, was chatting to them, and this chap told him he was a Christian, and we're the only ones here, he said. You know, he, he was a foreigner, so he could tell him that. And he said, you're not the only ones here. There are several Christians in this area. And and then they were joined in. But do you see, the minute that they knew, they wanted to be part of the living stones where we are joined together. I'm not saying it's impossible. I mean, there have got to be missionaries who've gone out or workers who've gone out and have been alone in, in far countries. But that's not been their desire, that, you know, to be... You can get some people who would would say, I I like to be a Christian, but I don't want to be involved with all the church. And being involved with all the church can be messy. You know, I'm not saying it's the, the most wonderful. It should be the most wonderful experience. It's not always like that. But you you need to be part of the fellowship of God. We are to be built up as a spiritual house. We are to be a holy priesthood, and I'll come to that later. And we are to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, the Jews used to offer animal sacrifices. And Peter was a Jew, and he'd been brought up in this. And he's talking about we're offering not animals sacrifice. We're offering, and that could be the service that you give. It could be your giving. It could be your praise to God. It could be evangelism. All sorts of things that are spiritual sacrifices where getting through to God or worshipping God or giving to the work of God are all part of your sacrifices. 
In the Old Testament, only God selected those who could be priests. Normally it was those who were descendants of Aaron, Moses' brother, in the tribe of Levi, unless at times God chose other people. And sometimes God did do this. And for instance, Gideon, if you read the story of Gideon, he was told by God to go and make a sacrifice. And there are others through. But there are others who, took, <laughs> who thought that they were entitled to give the sacrifice, like the king of Saul, and God was very angry with them. But now Peter is saying that followers of Jesus who are built up as a spiritual house are able to offer spiritual sacrifices. The pattern has been changed. If you are a Christian, you can offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. And that's why in the Reformation times, they talked about the priesthood of all believers. And I'll come back to that again. And Peter then, in this passage, goes, moves on to quote the Old Testament scriptures. And he starts off with Isaiah 28, saying, where it, it, in verse 16, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Peter slightly changes that and says, he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. And Peter moves on to the consequences for those who believe in Jesus, they receive this precious value. And for those who do not believe in Jesus, he quotes another scripture, but this time from the Psalms, Psalm 118, and it says, where the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. There is a separation between those who believe in Jesus and those who do not. For those who, um, you know, you get people who say, I am nearer to God in a garden than anywhere else on earth. Now, I think gardens are lovely, and I like walking around people who've tended their gardens and got beautiful flowers and things like that, but it's absolute nonsense. Just being in a garden doesn't bring you nearer to God. It, it gives you an appreciation of his wonderful creation, and I'm, I wouldn't want to do that. But it's not going to bring you near to God. You need to be as living stones being built into the people of God. So there's a separation between those who believe in Jesus and those who do not. For those who reject Jesus, Peter quotes another scripture again. And Peter will, of course, have been schooled in all the Old Testament scriptures. And what, what, what was sort of almost second knowledge to him is not necessarily second knowledge to all of us. He's, he's quoting from Isaiah. He says, Then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over. Basically because Israel had rejected Jesus. Of course, Peter will have had vividly in mind one of the parables that Jesus taught. This is a story, you'll find it in, in three of the four Gospels, in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke's Gospel. It's the story of a landowner who plants a vineyard, um, puts a wall around it, digs a wine press to press the grapes, um, builds a tower and rents it out to some vine growers and then he goes off on a journey. And at harvest time he says, the owner sends his servants um, to, to get some of the produce of the vineyard. But the tenants beat one, kill the second, 
and stone the third. So then the owner of the vineyard sends more servants, but they are treated in the same way. And then afterwards, the owner of the vineyard sends his son, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants kill him and seize the inheritance. And Jesus is illustrating by this parable the Jewish rejection of all the prophets through the time and the future killing of the son, which is Jesus, when they crucify Jesus. And he quotes this ver the verse of the stone that the builders rejected. In the parable, Jesus quotes the, 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 the story of the, the stone, the thing. And then this is the verse, we move on to the verse that John Stott said was one of the 20 all Christians, and it's verse 9, where it says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. In Galatians 6.17, Paul writes, From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. In this case, it was a physical marking, from his beatings and his other sufferings for Jesus. I want to say that we Christians carry an aroma, a spiritual authority from Jesus. Um, <clears throat> when I was uh, young, I was 10 years old when we moved to England, and um, my father had died when I was three, and there was my mother and my brother and me who came to England. And um, we were fairly poor, um, financially poor. I'm not saying emotionally or all that. We were fairly poor financially, and we lived in digs. And eventually, because my mother was a primary school teacher, she got given um, a council property. And so we lived in, <laughs> grandly called, a maisonette, you know, French word, <laughs> uh, on a council estate. Not a very large council, but quite a sizable council estate. We lived in that. And um, it was a ground floor flat in this council estate. And then when I went off to university, I was thinking, how can I earn uh, money during my vacations? And I did a little calculation one day in my first term that I did three terms a year each of eight weeks. And that was uh, the thing. So I did 24 weeks of, um, of being at university, and the rest of the time I was off. And I worked out, I think, that the state schools in those days did 40 weeks a year. And so I thought, well, that's uh, between my 24 and 40, that's 16 weeks where I could go and help them and they would pay me. And so very boldly, I, in those days, the county councils, I think, used to be in charge of education. And I wrote to the Essex County Council, and I said, this will be the first um, day of my vacation. Would you like to employ me as an unqualified teacher? Um, and to my surprise, they wrote back and said, we've made an appointment with you on the first Monday of your holiday to go to a school in the Barking Dagenham area uh, and be interviewed by the head teacher. And the, uh, the head teacher uh, was a woman, and Barking Dagenham was a, a toughish area, okay, and it was about five miles from my home. So I cycled to the school, and it was a woman who was the, the, the head teacher, 
of the school. And she, um, she said to me after she'd interviewed me, I'm going to try you. I'll give you a trial period, and if you're okay, um, we'll carry on with you. Uh, thing. And um, <clears throat> it, it was really two schools in one. Um, there, there was um, a girls' school, and all the girls uh, were taught by women, and there was a boys' school, and all the boys were taught by men, right? And it, uh, you didn't have... It, it was in the days of before there was comprehensive education. It was called a secondary modern school, and um, it was from a fairly tough area, and some of the boys carried flick knives or switchblades or whatever you call them. You know, where you flick this, now comes the blade. So um, it, it wasn't an easy thing. And uh, I actually found it, in my first trial, very, very difficult. Um, but the head teacher obviously thought I was okay because she, I then went back over the next three years 15 times <laughs> to do spells, and they paid me. And when I did my final exams, they moved me from um, unqualified teacher to, I got a lot more money, um, but it was before I moved off into engineering. Now, the girls' syllabus, besides English, maths, and science, plus some French, including typing and secretarial classes, sewing, needlework, and dressmaking, domestic science, and singing, Right? And the boys' syllabus, besides the normal of uh, science, English, maths, and that sort of thing, they did woodwork, metalwork, and more PE and games than the girls did. And I was a fill-in teacher. I could be used for anything. Um, if any teacher was sick, I took over their classes. Um, any teacher who felt tired and didn't want to go to their class, He'd send me in <laughs> to, do their teach, to do the teaching for them. Um, I, I look at teachers now and the lesson plans they have to prepare and what they say they're going to do and, and, uh, and, and um, what, what they actually have done. There was none of this in that case. I, the, the science teacher would say to me, we're at this page in the science textbook, go and teach them the next bit. You know? And... I, Literally, like that, you know, not the day before or two days before so I could read it up, just go in. And if they were doing English literature, uh, go in and teach. Now, because I was a fill-in teacher, sometimes I was asked to teach girls' groups, but it was not the normal pattern. And one day they put on my syllabus, and I'm sure that actually this was the teachers just ganging up to have a joke, would I go and teach the senior girls' class singing? And I thought, I can't read music. I don't play any instruments. I, I have no idea what to teach girls. And these were sort of 15-year-old girls, you know. I was only a few years older than them. Um, go and teach them singing. And uh, I went there and I said to them, I, I thought the only thing is to be honest with them, I told the girls, I haven't a clue about singing. <laughs> I, I don't even know how to sing myself. How can I possibly teach you how to sing? Why don't we have a talk and you tell me what sort of music you like and I'll get, I'll get some understanding. And so that's how we uh, spent the lesson. But fortunately there was no Ofsted looking at whether these girls... <laughs> One of the days when I was a teacher in this school, it was uh, the school bell had gone 
for the final um, you know, period, of the four o'clock or whatever the time was that we finished, and the boys and the girls were all streaming out of the school, and uh, they'd gone beyond the school fence, you know, they were in the road, and suddenly a fight broke out between two of the boys, and then a whole gaggle of boys, and I have to say girls as well, all gathered round to cheer them on in this fight. Now, I was in the staff room looking out of the, the window, and I could see this. And there were a couple of masters there, and they said, they're not on the school premises, it's after the school working hours, we are not responsible for what happens there. Now, I thought, this is wrong. <laughs> I was a, what well, I don't know, a 21-year-old, you know. So I just went out of the school gate, and I, said, I just said in a very loud voice, What's going on here? Stop it immediately. You two boys, separate. And the rest of you, walk quietly home. <laughs> and they did. <laughs> what I didn't realize, it wasn't me, is I was carrying the authority of a school teacher. And they saw me as a school teacher, and teachers had to be obeyed. Similar incident, I can remember Anne and I were driving and then um, we were coming to, to somewhere near a bridge and there was a line of traffic and at the front of the thing was a, a young woman who held up her hand. She was about 25 I think and uh, no one blew their horns, everyone just stopped, everyone didn't do anything and they didn't do that because ultimately she waved us all through, but we must have been there 10 or 15 minutes because she was dressed in a policewoman's uniform. And so she was a policewoman who was stopping it. And she had got, it wasn't that she as a young woman had got this authority, it, she carried the authority of the police. And I want to say that we as Christians carry a spiritual authority, a spiritual aroma from Jesus. Christians carry the authority of Jesus. And when we encounter spiritual conflicts, we are marked people because it, it's almost as though we've got a stamp on us from Jesus. These people belong to me. That doesn't mean so you won't have conflicts and you won't fail in your conflicts. You may well. He goes on in this verse to say, we are a royal priesthood. Now the Latin word for priest is pontifex, which if you translate it is a maker of bridges or bridge builder. And a priest is meant to be a bridge to connect people with God. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church still use the phrase the pontifex maximus, don't they, which, which they're referring to the Pope. He's supposed to be a uh, the biggest bridge builder. There was a civil engineer called Thomas Telford. He lived in uh, Georgian stroke Victorian times. And he was a brilliant engineer. And he built a lot of the canals. He built the Caledonian Canal. Um, and he built a lot of structures where canals had to go over valleys and things like that. And he had to build bridges and this sort of thing. And his friend... Um, Robert Southey, who was the poet, used to call him Pontifex 
Maximus. <laughs> you are the great bridge builder. Um, he didn't mean it in a spiritual sense. He just meant that in real terms he was that. Unfortunately for Thomas Telford, um, uh, the railways then came in and all the canals which had been used for transport were no longer of such importance. And so he declined in importance and he's not remembered as the great engineer that he was because what he built was for the past ages, not for what was now coming through with the new railways. In Reformation, the theology brought the concept that every believer should be a bridge to connect people to God. People who are unbelievers to be connected to Jesus. I think it was probably in the late 1970s, I was working in an engineering company in central London, and um, I was leading a team of about five or six people. And the, the firm had the partners, ten partners or so, who each controlled the work. But underneath them was the company secretary. I don't mean a sort of typist-type secretary. I mean the sort of position who controlled all the administrative um, functions of, the, um, of the, the whole firm. And he phoned me up and asked me to come and see him. Oh, you always wonder, what's he, what's he going to see to me? And he said to me, he said, we've got a young man from Cambridge University who's just joining us. Um, he's, he's very able and, and very good, and uh, we've decided to put him in your team, and we want you to take care of him and develop him and make sure he has a good experience of, um, of what uh, life engineering is all about, you know. Ensure that he has good experience, and we're, we're trusting you to look after him and make sure. I, I just treated him like any of the others, uh, I have to say. But one day there came a job um, that I was asked to do, which was um, <clears throat> there's a, there was a big oil tanker storage depot in Swansea, and um, what was happening was that it was beginning to pollute Swansea Bay. And... Um, I got this message, would I go down to Swansea and see what we could do to recommend them, what could we propose to help them, because the people were complaining about the thing. And um, I thought, well, this is a sort of two-man type job. We'll go down and collect all the information and we'll come back. And so I chose him um, to go with me, this young, youngish Cambridge graduate. And um, I, I was praying the night before. I thought, Lord, I'm going to be in a car with him for four to five hours I'm going to be with him two days. We're going to be staying in the same hotel. We're going to be eating meals together. Help me to lead him to you, Lord. And that was my prayer before I went. And um, so I picked him up in the car, and we were driving down, and I thought, I'll start asking about him about his life at Cambridge. And I asked him how had he enjoyed Cambridge, and what had he done at Cambridge. And uh, the more he said, the more and more discouraged I got. I thought, oh, no, there's no way I'm going to be... Uh, able to speak to him about the Lord. And, um, and so I eventually gave up, and I said, sorry, Lord, I, I can't find a breakthrough. I've tried so often, I can't get through to him, right? He's a, I mean, I could get through to him as an engineer, but not... not. And uh, so we went and we did the job, and we collected all the drawings, and, we, and what was happening, obviously, was that uh, road tankers that carried petrol to, um, and diesel to petrol stations were coming in, connecting up, and few drops of oil um, 
were spilling when they connected up, or petrol or, or diesel would be spilling. And what happened that when it rained, that was washed into the surface water drains, and the surface water drains went out to the sea, and that was causing the pollution. So we had to look into that solution. And we collected all the drawings, and we were going to go back to London. And uh, I just happened to say to this guy, um, uh, is it important to you what time we get back to London? And he said, well, I'd like to get back to s at 7 o'clock. And uh, I said, why do you want to get back for 7 o'clock? He said, there's a meeting I want to go to. I said, what meeting are you going to? He said, you won't know it, it's called the Fountain Trust. Now, I guess many of you don't know what that is, but in the, those days when there was a, a move of the Holy Spirit and lots of churches, not Icarus, but lots of churches were sort of uh, clamping down, there was an organization called the Fountain Trust where people would talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and things like that. And I'd been to one or two of their meetings. I knew them. I'd been even to a course on prayer that they'd organized. So he said, tell me more about this fountain trust you're going to. And then it turned out that when he was at Cambridge, he was converted. He'd become a Christian at Cambridge. And here, when I was speaking him to him about Cambridge, he couldn't tell me, perhaps I was too much in authority, that he'd been, become a Christian. And I had given up when I hadn't been able to break through. What I want to say is that we are all meant to be a royal priesthood. We are all meant to be providing a bridge where people can come to Jesus. Am I still okay for time, Shirley? You sure? We as the church and as individuals are a holy nation. The root word behind holy is hagios, which means different. We're meant to be different people. Jesus prayed to his Father, They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. You've got to live in the world, but not be of the world. I think it was William Temple said, The hardest decision that Christians face, maybe he over-exaggerated it, is what does it mean to be in the world, but not of it? In John's letter, he says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is of the world. So what is lust of the flesh? all that appeals to our appetites, excessive desires for food or drink or sex. What is the lust of the eyes? Materialism, coveting what we see but don't have, envying others, wanting things that we don't have but we see other people have got it. Pride of life is ambition that puffs us up and puts us on the throne. These are what I believe that Jesus is talking. Do not be of the world. We've got to guard ourselves against that. We are a people for God's own possession. What about when we fail? And we will. 
because we are targeted people and we will, with our best wantings, fail over and over again. Then what do we do is we confess it to the Lord and ask for his forgiveness and step on again. Peter was saying, we have moved once we were not a people, but now, praise God, we belong to him. We are the people of God. We had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. We are the people of God. You may not feel it, but it's, it's, it's like an aroma that you carry, just like I carried the aroma of a school teacher and the policewoman carried the aroma of the police. We carry the aroma of Jesus where we go. When France collapsed just at the Second World War, when Germany swept through and conquered things, General de Gaulle had fled from France um, to, to London and he made a broadcast to the French people. He said, now if I were Bruce, I'd, I'd say it to you in French, but I could only say to you the translation in English. France has lost a battle. We have not lost the war. I thought that was an amazing statement to make. I think he cribbed it actually from John Milton in Paradise Lost, who said, what though the field be lost, all is not lost. But that's a, a different thing. But it was a very thing. And I want to say that we will lose battles, but we haven't lost the war. You pick yourself up and you get on and do it again. You pick yourself up and you get on and going on. And the Lord is there to strengthen us, to give us the energy, the spiritual energy, to keep on going on and going on and going on. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Amen.